Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6, and also as well, please, if you'd put a finger in the book of Isaiah, and chapter number 6. Matthew 6, Isaiah, uh, chapter number 6. There's an old uh, classic movie. Um, we've shown it so many times, showed it so many times in the early days in the, in the building of our fellowship, and, and that movie is called Cross and the Switchblade. And what it's about, it's a story of a preacher by the name of David Wilkerson. And uh, in this movie, it's a true story about about him reaching uh, hardcore gang members, literally in the heart of New York City. And uh, in in a book that he wrote, he's he's giving his story, what, what prompted him to go to New York is uh, he was sitting in his uh, living room one night and he said that God convicted him and God told him to turn off his TV set on a Saturday evening and uh, I want you to pray. And so David Wilkerson, he did exactly that. He got up and he turned his TV set off and he began to pray. And he went on and he tells a story. He said that it was literally in this, in this quiet time, in this private time in Pennsylvania in his living room as he's praying, as he's doing his best to make a connection with God, to, to get a hold of God. While he was praying, he just happened to look over and he saw on his table, he saw a magazine. It was, uh, it was Life magazine. And there was an article there in that magazine about gang members being tried in New York City for, for various crimes they had committed. And he said that at that moment, he said, God spoke to my heart. And that's when he decided to get up from his house, travel to New York City, and actually begin to watch as one of these trials is taking place. At the time that he was praying, he was pastoring a little tiny church in Pennsylvania. And so here, here is the power of prayer. A small-time pastor in the middle of Pennsylvania, and God began to deal with him about going right into the heart of the American underworld, right into the belly of the the American underworld in all places, New York City. And the result of that, the outcome of that is recorded in that movie, The Cross and the Switchblade. It's recorded in the book. Powerful revival begin to come out in that city because God laid a hold of a man and told him, I want you to pray. And God got a hold of his heart. He did that. And out of that came a movement in America today known as Teen Challenge. I want to deal with one of the greatest, one of the greatest issues of your Christian life, of your Christian ministry, of your Christian experience. And I want to talk to you about what the Bible says about your prayer closet. I want to talk to you about your prayer life. One of the great men of God, one of the Wesley brothers, John Wesley, generations ago he made a statement that is every bit true today as it was when he spoke it. He said generations ago, God will do nothing except in answer to prayer. And so if you're serious about God, If you're serious about ministry, if you're serious about fruitfulness, if you're serious about making your life count for the kingdom of God, I want you to hear that statement, God will do nothing except in answer to prayer. I want to talk to you tonight about coming out of the closet. Matthew chapter 6, I want to read two verses of scripture, and then also we're going to read a powerful account in the book of Isaiah, Matthew 6, familiar verses. These are the words of Jesus, verse 5 and verse 6. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, 
For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they might be seen of men. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Jump over to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. We want to read verses 1 through 9. In the year that Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And so I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Also, I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Father, we come before you tonight, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. I pray, God, that you minister and you have right away in this conference i ask god that you would speak to pastors pastors wives encourage disciples and help us lord to be people of prayer we thank you for this and we ask you in jesus mighty name i want to talk to you first of all this evening about confronting your own inadequacies now this is a very famous portion of scripture here God is making an Old Testament visitation, and what he's doing is he reveals himself to his man Isaiah. And as God reveals himself, I want you to see Isaiah's response. Isaiah's response is simply three words, woe is me. And this reveals a simple little truth. That when you begin to get saved, when you begin to give your life in service, when you begin to give your life in ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ, when you have a desire in your heart to be used of God and to be fruitful for the kingdom of God, if you have any sense of honesty at all, if God is going to use you, if God is going to do a work in your life, your prayer is that, woe is me. God, how can this happen? How can you use me? How can you raise me as a man or a woman of God? And so here Isaiah is getting an understanding for the first time in his life that God wants to use him. And this is his response, woe is me. His response is, God, how in the world are you going to do this? I'm just a common, I'm just a simple, I'm just an ordinary man, and you want to use me? How are you going to make this happen? How are you going to pull this off? And that leads us to this, because so many times in, in our Christian experiences, we look at our our unique skills, we look at our talents, we look at our abilities, and very quickly we come to the conclusion 
that God, unless you help me, unless you make me fruitful, God, I'm in serious trouble. And this is Isaiah's response as God is saying, Isaiah, I want to use your life. And Isaiah, his honest assessment is simply that, woe is me. God, how can you use me? How can you make me fruitful? I'd like to read you the story. In May 1855, an 18-year-old boy went to the deacons of a church in Boston. He had been raised in a Unitarian church in almost total ignorance of the gospel. But when he had moved to Boston to make his fortune, he began to attend a Bible-preaching church. Then, in April of 1855, his Sunday school teacher had come to the store where he was working and simply but persuasively shared the gospel and urged in the young man to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had. And now he was applying to join the church. One fact quickly became obvious. This young man was almost totally ignorant of biblical truth. One of the deacons asked him, Son, what has Christ done for us all and for you which entitles him to our love? His response was, I don't know. I think Christ has done a great deal for us, but I don't think of anything in particular as I know of. That was hardly an unimpressive start. Years later, his Sunday school teacher said of him, I can truly say that I have seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than his was when he came to my Sunday school class, and I think the committee of the church seldom met an applicant for, for membership who seemed more unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided views of gospel truth, still less to fill any space of public or extended usefulness. Nothing, nothing happened very quickly to change their minds. The deacons decided to put him on a year-long instruction program to teach him basic Christian truths. Perhaps they wanted to work on some of the other rough spots of his life as well. Not only was he ignorant of spiritual truths, he was barely literate and his spoken grammar was atrocious. The year-long truce, the year-long probation did not help him very much. At his second interview, there was only a minimal improvement in the quality of his answers, but since it was obvious that he was a sincere and committed, if ignorant Christian, they accepted him as a church member. Over the next years, I'm sure that many people looked at that young man and convinced that God would never use a person like that, and they wrote off Dwight L. Moody. But God did not write off Mr. Moody. By God's infinite grace and perse persevering love, D.L. Moody was transformed into one of the most effective and significant servants of God in all church history. A man whose impact is still with us today. One of the great truths of Scripture is that when God looks at us, He does not see us for what we are, but for what we can become as He works in our lives. He is in the business of taking weak, insignificant people and transforming them by His presence in their lives. He begins with us where we are, as we are, he knows our weaknesses, failures, discouragements, doubts, and inadequacies. But he does not say, get rid of those problems and then I can use you. Rather, he comes to us in our weakness with the promise of his presence that will transform our inadequacy into his strength. You and I tonight are living in a world that is marred, it's marked, it's saturated, literally, by the powers of hell, by the powers of darkness. 
And when you begin to share your faith, when you begin to witness, when you begin to outreach, when you begin to evangelize, immediately you're going to be confronted by the very best that hell has to offer. You're going to be confronted by the very best. Make a stand for God. And you're going to be confronted with the very best that the devil has to offer. As you walk in the streets of your cities, wherever you come from, this is the song you're going to sing. Dopers and witches and queers, oh my. Dopers and witches and queers, oh my. I was talking to a pastor and we were talking about how you have no comprehension what and lives, what and who lives in your city. You have no idea of the powers, literally, the powers and the principalities that reside in your city until you begin outreach, until you begin to witness, until you begin to evangelize and share your faith. And you begin to go on outreach. You begin to take the truth of the gospel into your hometown streets. And can I tell you, demons are waiting for you. Not only are they waiting for you, but they will confront you the minute you begin to speak for God. The minute you begin to live for God. And I want to tell you, pastor. I want to tell you, disciple. If you think that you're going to be successful in dealing with demons, powers, principalities in your town, in your streets. If you think you're going to be successful in your own talent, in your own power, in your own ability, we have a name for that in American. You're nuts. You're crazy. You're deluded. This is why... Every believer, this is why every Christian pastor and pastor's wife, you must have a prayer closet. You must. This is not an option. This is not something, well, if I feel like it, I will, I'll adopt one. You have to have this. You have to have a prayer closet. Somewhere you can go. Somewhere you could get away from your cell phone. You could get away from social media. You could get away from all the voices clamoring to get your attention. Somewhere quiet and private where you could get on your face before God. And I want to remind you what Isaiah's prayer was. Isaiah's prayer was, woe is me. And I want to tell you, disciple, I want to tell you, pastor, if you're going to be fruitful, if you're going to have a ministry that can be used of God, that's going to be your prayer. Woe is me. God, you're going to have to help me work through all of my inadequacies uh, so that I can do something for the kingdom of God. I wonder how many of you in this great conference, how many before you got saved, you were dedicated to sin. You were dedicated to your sin. Before I got saved, I didn't dabble in sin. I didn't dabble in my sin. Before I got saved, I was sold out. I was committed to my sin. Sin, gratification, Pleasure. For many people, listen, that was your driving force of life. That was your ambition. That was your goal of life. Pleasure, gratification, satisfaction. And I want to tell you, pastor, I want to tell you, disciple, tonight, how are you going to meet that challenge head on? I've just described to you all the people that live in your city. If you're going to have impact, you're dealing with people that love sin. They want pleasure. They want instant gratification. And what are you going to bring to the table that is going to literally change the course of their life? Change the course of their existence. I'm telling you, God's not going to break through in their lives until you learn how to pray.
There's a classic old book by Eugene Peterson. The book is it's built on the scripture out of the Bible, Running with the Horses. That's the title of the book, Running with the Horses. And I want to tell you, how are you going to run with the horses if you don't even know how to pray? How are you going to run with the horses if you don't have a prayer closet? It's here in this place where you come before God with all your inadequacies. Woe is me. It's in this place that God begins to help you, that God begins to give you the victory over all the, the myriad of inadequacies in your own life. You are in Bible conference this week. And no doubt you're going to hear key after the key to revival is this. The key to revival is that. And what I want to do, I don't want to give you a key to revival. I want to give you a key to no revival. This is a guaranteed key to no revival, no growth, no maturity, no development. And that key is simply this. Don't pray. Don't pray. And it'll never, it'll never happen. This is the engine that makes everything else run. This is the core that makes everything else in life and ministry work. There are so many different compartments that, that produce your Christian life. There are so many different compartments that make you who and what you are. There's the compartment of, of character and integrity. There's the compartment in your life of purity and holiness. There's the compartment in your life of faithfulness and loyalty, passion and Holy Ghost fire, commitment and endurance. And God knows that all we need all of these at work in our life. These are all top priorities in themselves. But what is the engine that drives every single one of these compartments. I'll tell you what it is. It's the engine of prayer. And you will not, you will not on your own meet the shortcomings of your life, the inadequacies in your own heart of ministry. You have to have a place where you can honestly go and get before God and say, God, I need help here. God, I'm weak there. God, I need strength there. You have to be able to get on your face before God and say, God, I really need your help. And this is all part and parcel of Isaiah's cry. God reveals himself. God says, I'm going to use you, Isaiah. And Isaiah's prayer is, oh, woe is me. God, you're going you're gonna to have to help me. Because ministry, revival, and fruitfulness, this is something you cannot do on your own. This might come as a blow to your pride. This might come as a blow to your ego. You'll never become what God intended you to become unless you pray. Can I tell you about one of the great revelations of life? One of the great revelations of life is when you realize, I'm inadequate. One of the great prayers of your life is, God, I'm inadequate. God, I need your help. God, I can't do this on my own. How many of you in this great conference this week... How many of you are interested in shortcuts? How many of you like shortcuts? Please, let me give you one. It's so much easier to understand this from the get-go. From the very beginning, understand this. God, I can't do this on my own. God, I'm inadequate. God, you're, you're going to have to help me. And this is the shortcut that I'm trying to give you. The sooner you realize this, the better you are. The sooner you latch on to this. God, I need your help. 
Psalms 91 verse 1 says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress and my God. In Him will I trust. In the book of Judges chapter 6, God tells Gideon, He says, Gideon, Go in the little strength that you have. Gideon, you're going to be there. You're going to be their deliverer. You're going to be their redeemer. And I want you to see what Gideon did with the little bit of strength that he had. The Bible says he went and he made a sacrifice to the Lord. And the significance there that I want you to see is here's Gideon. He took what little bit that he had and he gave it to God. And it was out of that meeting place. It was out of that altar experience that literally God gave him the strength to do what God called him to do for his life. There's an interesting statement found again and again and again in the Bible. Matter of fact, Gideon makes one of the quotes Gideon says, I am the least in my father's house. Many of you, you know the story. When Samuel anointed David to be, or uh, when Samuel anointed Saul to be the king of Israel, Saul said, my family is the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. The apostle Paul picks up this theme in the New Testament. And Paul says, I, who am less than the least of all saints. And this is the common thread that you see Old Testament and New Testament. This is the thread that Isaiah picks up on is, woe is me. All of these men, I can't do this. I am the least of my, I'm incapable. There's no way, there's no way this can happen. Listen, folks. That's not a bad revelation to have. I'm the least in my family. I can't do what you call me to do. And this is why you need to pray. I'm not talking about worm theology. I don't know if you know what worm theology is. Worm theology is I'm a nobody. I'm just this little worm. I, I'm, I'm weak. I can't do it. I'm not talking about worm theology. I'm talking about honest theology. That before God can use you, that before you can be fruitful, before your life can have impact and influence with God, listen to me, brother, sister, you need an honest assessment of yourself. You need an honest assessment of your own heart. When you honestly see what the world so desperately, desperately needs and what so little you have to give, what so little you have to give in your own power, in your own strength, listen, that will drive you to your prayer closet. That will drive you to pray. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. I want to talk to you secondly this evening about accepting responsibility. The first thing that we're reading about in the book of Isaiah is Isaiah is coming to grips with his own inadequacy. What was me? God, if anything good, if anything of you is going to come out of my life, God, you're going to have to help me. And then the second thing that Isaiah says, a very famous statement, whom shall I send, God says. And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And I want to remind you, I want to remind you, God hears you when you pray. God heard that statement. God hears you when you pray. And at some point of time, 
in your Christian development, in your Christian maturity, I mean, you know, things are supposed to grow. They're not supposed to get weaker. They're supposed to get stronger. And some point in your Christian development, you need to learn to become responsible. Responsibility. As a man of God, as a woman of God, we represent Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. It's in the name, Christ-like. We're not serving Ford. We're not serving Apple. What we're doing is we are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you that it's not about you. It's about Him. When we got saved... Most of us, we came to Jesus with totally selfish motives. This is the reason many of us got saved. God, I'm a mess. Can you help me? God, I need help. God, can you put my life back together? Can you put my marriage back together? Can you put my home, my, can you put my family back together? And you know what? Step by step, God began to do that for us. But listen, there needs to come a place of transition where it's not about me anymore. It's not about you anymore. It's not about my needs, my salvation, my blessing, my comfort. Somewhere it's got to transition from you to him, from you to his church, his people, his worker. And this transition point that I'm talking about is it's a great day in your life, pastor, disciple, delegate, when you accept responsibility for others. That's what ministry is. Ministry is you come to that place in your life where you're comfortable, you're saved, you believe you're saved, you're right with God. And you get involved in ministry because you want to help other people find their way. You want to help other people make it to heaven. This is what ministry is, doing something for God. And listen to me, brother, this comes, this happens in prayer. You remember the story, Jesus is praying in the garden. Jesus says, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me. And, and what Jesus is saying there, he, he didn't want to go to the cross. He knew what was awaiting him, and he didn't want to do it. But thank God, he, he did. And he came to the conclusion he said, Father, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And I know you've heard that a hundred times, a thousand times before. But what I want you to hear now is Jesus is now accepting responsibility. He is now saying, God, I want to do this for you. I want to do something for you. God, I want to do what you have called me to do. And for those of you that know the whole story, the accepting of this responsibility, this was hammered out in the garden. This was hammered out in prayer. One of the marks of maturity in every area of life is you have to learn to be responsible. How many parents, you want to teach your children to be responsible? This is a great lesson. We want to teach our children. We want to teach our teenagers. And before, how many do you remember? Do you remember? It's not that far back. Do you remember when you were irresponsible? Do you remember that? I mean, today, you might be responsible. 
But can you remember when you were totally irresponsible? Do you remember when no one could depend upon you? That was back in the day. Someone else will do it. Someone else will pick up the pieces. Someone else will be responsible. Someone else will be dependable. Someone else will get the job done. And I want to tell you, one of the great crossings of life is this. I will grow up. I will be responsible. This was Isaiah's prayer. God says, who will go for me? And Isaiah stood up. He said, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll go. I'll be responsible. In that statement, Isaiah is saying, God, your cause is now my cause. Your battle is my battle. Your will is my will. Isaiah went on record and he says, I'm accepting the responsibility to make my life count for the kingdom of God. And it's in the prayer room you make this decision. Can you do this? Can you, sometime in conference this week, can you get in a prayer room? Can you say before God, this is my decision. God, I, I'm going to be responsible for you now. God, I give you my life. I want to have impact for you. God, I'm setting my hand to the plow. And I will not be turned aside. I can vividly remember that day in my own life. In my own mother church. Globe, Arizona. I'll never forget a couple was being sent out to pioneer a church. Up to that point of time, I was spiritually irresponsible. I was going to church. I was enjoying my salvation. I was enjoying all the benefits of the church. I was enjoying the preaching. I was enjoying the friendships. I was enjoying the relationships. And at that point of time in my Christianity, it was all about me. Me, 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 me. But then one night, a church was planted. I went to my brother-in-law, and I told him, we both sat together, and we says, you know what, this man that's, that's leaving the church, he's going to start a new church, and now by his leaving, he's going to leave a giant hole in our church. And I told my brother-in-law, we need to do something about it. We have to fill that gap. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understand as a child. I thought as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. And that was one of the great days in my heart where I grew up. And I said, I want to accept the responsibility. I want to do something for God. That was the day I grew up. That was the day for the first time I became responsible. I made the commitment, winning souls, impacting eternity. That's not just my pastor's job. That's not just the church's responsibility. I went on record and I said, now that's, that's my job. That's, that's what I want to do. And there will come a time in your development, there will come a time in your maturity, you've got to make a decision. Somewhere, this gospel has to become your gospel. Somewhere, this responsibility has to become your responsibility. It's time. It's time to make the decision. I'm going to be responsible. If you enter into marriage, if you get married, if you get married, if you get married, and if you view marriage as a game, 
If you view marriage as a good time, you'll never make it beyond the first month. Have you ever thought of those words, until death do us part? Maybe, maybe you ought to think about those words. Because before God, you're taking an oath. You're making a vow. You're praying a prayer. And God Almighty heard those words. And I want to tell you, you know what else God hears, disciples? God hears it when you're at the altar and you say, here am I. Send me, O Lord. I want to close. I want to talk to you about finding direction because in the closet, strange to say, in the closet you find direction. In the prayer closet, you'll find direction for your life. Three statements Isaiah makes. Jesus in the New Testament, we, we read it tonight, exhorting us to pray. But now our focus is on this man Isaiah. Three statements. Number one, woe is me. God, if I'm going to do anything, if I'm going to do anything for me, you're going to have to get involved. God, you're going to have to help me. You're going to have to help me. I can't do this on my own. The second thing that Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Now I'm responsible. Now your mission is my mission. Your passion is my passion. And then the final thing, the third thing, God tells Isaiah, he says, I want you to go. I want you to go tell the people. And what I want you to see in this is what God is doing is God is giving Isaiah clear direction. We have to have this. This is what you have to find in the prayer room. You have to find clear direction. Now, direction is a wonderful thing. You know this to be true if you've ever been lost. I was brand new married, brand new married in the early 80s, and I took it for granted that my wife likes to do what I like to do. I took her hunting. I think it's the only time in her life that she has ever willingly gone hunting with me. And so I had the bright idea. I said, honey, let's go, let's go quail hunting, because I like to hunt these birds. And so what we did is we're out in the mountains of Arizona and I was, we're walking around a mountain and I chased out a covey. I chased out a, 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 bunch, of, a bunch of quail. And so, and so the birds went this way and we were walking to the truck. And so I just told my wife, I told her, honey, listen, I'm going to go chase those birds what I want you to do is I just want you to just to continue walk around the mountain. If you walk around the mountain, you will, you'll run right into the truck. And so me being the good husband that I was, I left her in the mountains. I went chasing after the birds, hunting the birds. And about half hour, 45 minutes later, I show back up at the truck and she's nowhere to be found. It's Arizona. It's desert country. It is, it is burning hot. My wife has no idea where she's at. She hasn't a clue. She knows she's in the state of Arizona. And I begin to holler for her and holler for her. And the more I begin to holler for her, the more panicked I got. And, and pretty soon I was screaming like a madman. I was screaming at the top of my lungs. And so I'm panicking and I'm thinking, where is she? Where is she? And so my only alternative is, is I know what I'll do is I'll just, I'll just, I'll just go to the top of a couple of mountaintops and, and from that, from that high place, I'll be able to look for her. I'll be able to, I'll be able to find where she's at. I, I ran to the top of these mountains. I looked and looked, couldn't find her. Ran to another mountain peak. I couldn't find her. And by this time, I'm beyond myself. I'm, I'm panicking. 
And so I don't know what else to do. There's nothing else to do. I made up my mind that the only answer is to get in my truck, drive back into town, and call out the search and rescue guys. They're, they're going to find her in the helicopters. And I'll never forget the joy as I'm driving back down to the city to try to find some help for my wife. I'll never forget the joy as I went around a corner and there's my wife walking down a wash. I see this tall, beautiful, blonde-headed girl, flushed, totally flushed red from the desert heat. If I remember correctly, she had the barrel of the gun and she was dragging the wood on the ground in the creek. We need direction. <laughs> King David is at a make or break moment in his life. You know the story. His hometown has been burnt to the ground. His own men are murmuring, wanting to kill him. David's at Ziklag. There's no place to run. He has no margin for error. This was a critical turning point in his life. And the Bible says these words that David inquired of the Lord. And when he inquired of the Lord, God gave him direction. And that direction, listen to me, Pastor, it didn't just save his ministry, it saved his life. Not every crisis you come to in ministry is going to be a ziklag crisis. But you will come to those make it or break it moments in life, moments in ministry, moments in marriage. And I want to tell you tonight, without that sacred prayer closet, you won't have a clue. You will not survive. And so, disciple, I want to encourage you, before you go to your pastor, before you go to him and tell him, I'm a mess. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. Maybe, maybe you need to get on your face before God and say, God, what do you want me to do? Isn't it funny? It's so much easier to go to pastor. It's so much easier to go to pastor, get a little counsel, Get a little wisdom. What a great shortcut. You don't have to go to God. Go to your pastor. I don't have to pray. Just go to my pastor. And then it's funny. You go to your pastor, and what does your pastor tell you? What did God tell you to do? Oh, you mean I really have to actually pray? I really have to get a hold of God? Psalms 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Very famous scripture. And what that's talking about, that's talking about direction. Direction. Years ago, a friend of mine, Pastor Joe Zebo, he told me, he said, I've got this great place where we could go and hunt deer. And he says, what we're going to do, what makes this so unusual, well, we're just going to go sit in a spot and we're going to wait for the deer to come to us. Now that's a great deer hunting strategy when you're on the east coast when there's a lot of woods when there's real thick thick woods but when you hunt deer in arizona it's it's wide open there's not a lot of trees it's wide open in arizona how you hunt deer is you just walk and walk and walk and walk and he says no we're not going to do that we're going to set up and the deer are going to come to us. And so what we did, our plan was to set up before dark. We were going to set up in this place before dark. And then we were going to wait for the deer to come to us. Have you ever walked in the dark before? We knew this country we were hunting. We knew the mountain we were hunting on. And we knew how to get right to our place in the daytime. 
we knew how to get there in the light. But walking in the dark, me and Pastor Zebel, it was like the blind leading the blind. God promises light and he promises direction. It's Olympic time. The best teams, the best athletes in the world are competing. What do you think would happen if before the event starts, you give your opponent a 20-point advantage? What do you think would happen if before the game even starts, you're down by 20 points? Listen to me. The fact that you're not praying, you're playing from behind. You're playing from behind. And you need to understand, you're not, you're not going against Shaq. You're not going against Kobe. You're not going against Tiger Woods. You're going against the enemy of your soul. And if you're, if you're not praying, you're 20 points behind. Maybe tonight what you need to do is clean out your closet. Maybe tonight what you need to do is find a place, find a corner, and make that place your meeting place with God. Matthew 6, 6. Jesus says, but you, when you pray, enter into that closet, and when you have shut the door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and the father and your father which sees you in secret, he shall reward you openly. Let's bow our heads. Heads are bowed. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. For a moment, no one is no one is praying. Christians are praying, no one is talking, no one is moving around.